Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. We'll bring chapter 2 to a close today. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would feed us and nurture us, strengthen us, correct us where we need to be corrected, comfort us where we need your comfort, cleanse us, and strengthen us. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that truth doesn't change that your word is as unchanging as you are because it is yours. It came from you, it bears your authority, and it bears your power. Throughout time, mankind has attempted to deny your word and change it. It's a constant temptation. But you preserve the scriptures. You fill them with power. And through them, you transform us and fill us. And we give you thanks for that. And in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. As we continue on, the writer says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Continuing in in faith is not easy. We're faced with challenges uh, on a a number of of fronts. The book of Hebrews, as I've explained, and I'll continue to remind you and myself, is written to people who Uh, to Jews who had put their faith in Jesus as the Savior, the promised Messiah, but then uh, were were looking back at the temple and the system and the priesthood and and saying, maybe we made a mistake, and they were wavering. And and this book is is really summarized pretty well in in chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift from it. And verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In Jesus Christ, we have the Savior. We have the perfect Lord. We have the perfect high priest. We have the perfect mediator, the perfect sacrifice. Why would anybody look elsewhere? But the truth is that continuing in faith is not easy. Now, there is obviously human opposition. Uh, There's been a lot of things in the news this week with social justice issues and with the hurricane in on the East Coast, we need to be uh, praying for those folks. But also in the last couple of weeks, news has been coming out about China. China is increasing persecution of Christians to a terrible degree. Pastors are being arrested again. Bibles are being banned and burned. Properties are, are being seized. Uh, 
re-education camps have been established. Muslim peoples and Christians as well are being uh, taken into captivity. Children are being put into what, is, what amounts to brainwashing classes. They're being told that there is no God, there is the state, that they're not to be thankful to some God, they're to be thankful to the premier of China. In Europe, persecution of Christians is taking place. A, a Christian woman in Sweden who is a midwife, was told that she would have to participate in abortions in order to work as a midwife in Sweden. Now, you can understand, not morally, but from a logical point of view, why an OBGYN would would be required to participate in abortions, but a midwife? She's taken a stance because of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is suffering for it. There's a a, a Christian rights group in Europe that has tracked over 2,200 acts of of oppression and discrimination against Christians throughout Europe in the last 10 years. These are formal. These are state-agreed-with legal issues. But it gets closer than that. Several years ago, Canada decided at at a national level that for a pastor to stand in a pulpit and teach what the Bible says about homosexuality, that it is a sin, is a hate crime. To my understanding, no pastors have yet been prosecuted for that, but that's coming. And also in Canada, just a, a few months ago, uh, the, the, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled on a case. There is a Christian university with the only Christian law school in Canada. And being a Christian school and a Christian law school, they required students to sign a statement of faith and essentially a statement about morality. And a suit was brought, and the Supreme Court agreed that no bar bar association in Canada has to recognize the, the law degree of a student from this university. And so they've effectively begun to argue that Christians will not be permitted to practice law if they went to this school. Well, that's, that, that's a pretty good way of, of silencing one aspect of the opposition. And just to, to emphasize, it's not that the students themselves did anything. It's that the school had a requirement, and because the school had, had a requirement, even though the students pass the courses and can pass the bar exam, they're not allowed to practice law. Formal persecution is coming to America. We can see in, in, in history that the church in the United States and, and American culture lags about 20 years or 30 years behind Europe. What's happening in Europe is making its way to Canada. It will come here. If you say that the Constitution prevents it, the Constitution is just a few men away from voting into into utter change. Those things are just words on paper, and they can be overturned in a heartbeat. And one day they will. But even, even more difficult than the human opposition that we face is the spiritual opposition that we face. And that, that opposition comes from two different sources. There's an external source of opposition and there's an internal source of opposition. The external source of opposition is Satan himself. And so the writer to Hebrews here says in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We have to remember that Satan is a real creature. He is a created being. He is a fallen angel. He is the inventor of sin, the father of lies. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He is a destroyer. He is the accuser, the adversary. He is vile. He is wicked. He is the most worthless creature in creation. He's the slanderer, the evil one, the prince of demons, the commander of fallen angels. He is a prowling lion looking for those who are vulnerable, and he is a seductive deceiver. See, when he came to Eve in the garden, he didn't approach her and say, tell you what, why don't you sin so God will kill you and you can suffer in hell for all eternity? He just sort of suggested. He just sort of implied. He just asked a question. Has God really said? And he allowed her to come to her conclusion, her own conclusions. And she was vulnerable to that. She willingly went along with that. I, I fully believe that had she resisted that that day, he would have simply come back and kept that steady pressure up. Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, that Satan is the first one on the scene when the word of God is preached. He's looking to snatch it away. He's looking to keep it away. Now, Jesus is Lord. He could crush Satan with a single word. The moment that Satan rebelled and said, I will be like the most high God, Isaiah 14 talks about that. The the moment Satan rebelled, God could have simply snuffed him out of existence. Instead, what we see in Hebrews 1-2 is that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1-3 is that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. All things include Satan. Jesus right now is upholding the existence of Satan. He didn't destroy Satan, but he has rendered him powerless, is what we're told. How did Jesus do that? He did that through death. He did that by his death on the cross. We're told that Jesus tasted death. It struck me last night as I was reviewing my notes. Jesus tasted death, but death didn't taste Jesus. Death is going to come for every one of us. It's going to leap on us like a a prowling lion. It is going to devour us. It's going to devour every human being. The oldest in here and the youngest in here all will come to the same end. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Young and old, rich and poor, wealthy and, and, and poor, strong and weak, they all come to the same end. Death will attack us, bite us, devour us, and swallow us down. But we're not told that death tasted Jesus. We're told that Jesus tasted death. He was born without sin. He lived a sinless life. So death had no right over him. Death had no power over him. Do you remember on the cross as Jesus hung there, as that whole lengthy, terrible afternoon progressed, it finally came to the point where Jesus says it is finished and redemption was accomplished. The atonement of sin was accomplished. And then what does the the text say in John? It says, then he yielded up his spirit. Why? Because even then death had no right to simply come and take him. Death had no right to simply grab Jesus and hold him with authority. If Jesus was going to die, even hanging on the cross, it it was going to be because he himself yielded 
to death. And that's what he did. He gave up his own spirit. He let death hold him for three days until it was time to take up his life again. And when Jesus went to take up his life again, death was powerless to stop him. He took up his life again and he rose from the dead. Now here's the wonderful thing. By Jesus' cross and resurrection, we who believe in him are reconciled to God. We are born enemies of God. We are born into warfare to God. But we are reconciled to him. By Jesus' death and resurrection, we are justified. That means that God declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ himself. It doesn't mean that he made us righteous. There's a Latin phrase that I think was coined by Martin Luther. um, And... I don't know how to pronounce Latin, so if I get it wrong, forgive me. Simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time righteous and a sinner. That's what it means to be a born-again Christian. It means to be declared righteous legally by God, even though we are still in a sinning state. It means that we have been acquitted and, and pronounced righteous even before we're done committing the crimes that he will acquit. Because of Jesus' cross and resurrection, we are sanctified. That means that we are set apart, declared to be gods, made holy. There is an aspect of sanctification where we are to voluntarily yield, we are to obey, we are to learn, we are to grow. We do that through repentance of sin and through confession of sin. We do that by being in the word and being in fellowship and focusing our lives on obedience to the Lord. But the the sanctification that God requires has been granted to us in the cross of Christ. He has made us holy and set us apart for God. By Jesus' cross and resurrection, we are adopted. See, we're not born spiritual children of God. We are children of God as all creation is children of God by virtue of being in his world. But we are not spiritually children of God at birth. We are spiritually children of Satan at birth. And so we are adopted into God's family. And by Jesus' death and resurrection, by his cross and resurrection, we are glorified. We we are uh, declared already like Christ. Now we're waiting for the reality of that to to be accomplished. As you look around the room, you don't see anybody who remotely looks like Jesus. But in, in the, the, either at the time of our death when we stand before him or in the moment of our resurrection or somewhere in that period of time, we will be as, as much like Jesus as it is possible for a human being to be. That is guaranteed by his cross and resurrection. Reconciliation, justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification are all ours in the resurrection a death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, as verse 17 says, or verse 15 says, we are freed from the slavery caused by the fear of death. The fear of death is this terrible reality. And there are people who live in genuine fear and terror all their lives, trying to pacify God, trying to figure out how to do the right thing. It's more common in, in our time for, for people to treat the fear of death by 
kicking it out the door and pretending that there is no death, pretending that there is nothing wrong, pretending that where everybody's going to be just great. Everybody's, everybody's going to go to heaven no matter who you are or what you've done. No matter what you believe or what you do with Jesus Christ, no matter what your faith is, you're, you're just good. You're just fine the way you are. It doesn't come from God, so it comes from Satan. But the promise that we have as Christians is that while death will come for us as, as it has planned to do, it will only get to gum us for a moment. And then Jesus will make it spit us out. And death will not be allowed to hold us either. There's some sweet words from the Lord Jesus found in John 11 as he goes to Lazarus' tomb. Uh, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he's speaking here of the first death. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the second death, which is judgment, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He says to her, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Interestingly enough, when he goes to the tomb and, and he, he says, take away the stone, she's the one who says, but Lord, he's been dead for four days. He stinks. And see, she knows what's true. She knows what she believes. And when she's actually faced with that moment, it's really hard for her. He doesn't rebuke her for that. He allows her weakness and keeps his promise. So the, the question for you, the question for me is, do we believe this? Is this our hope? That having believed in Jesus Christ, we will live even after we die, and we will never die spiritually. We have already passed from out of the hands of judgment. If you believe that, then the fear of death can't, enslave you any longer we have an external enemy that's satan we also have an internal enemy and the internal enemy is our own sin and satan certainly uh, takes advantage of that Uh, he still uses temptation as kind of a trick up his sleeve to persuade us and that temptation can be unrelenting i found this picture of a, of a tree growing on a boulder next to the ocean. I don't know where it is, but there's a bay behind it. You know, this, this is a rock that has stood there. I love, we did not communicate about what are you going to talk about. This, this, this boulder has stood there on the seashore for hundreds of years, thousands of years. It's withstood wind and rain and and perhaps freezing temperatures and hot temperatures, but it couldn't withstand the seed. See, it's not the tree. It's not that it couldn't withstand the tree. It couldn't withstand the seed. That seed found a crack to settle in and began to germinate and slowly and subtly, persistently just probed for a crack and was able to get a root down in that crack and just start. And and you know that if you could go down and look down, you would see that 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 rock has actually been cracked by that slow, persistent movement. That's what temptation is like. Temptation is usually not this sudden, explosive, 
violent thing. It's usually something that is very slow. That's why Satan didn't say to Eve, why not just sin and get God to kill you and then you can die and suffer in hell. That's why he says to Eve, essentially, I was just curious. Have, Have you ever thought about, and he just slowly, subtly probes for a vulnerability and finds it. Takes advantage of it. James uh, seems to to have this idea of this process of growth. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We We don't get to blame Satan for our sin. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So there's, there's this process of, of being carried away or being lifted away, being enticed. That, that enticement conceives and the idea is spawned and then it gives birth to actual sin. And then when the sin is accomplished, death. It's a, it's a growth process. It's a growth process. I'm sure any one of you could, could take the growth process for, for grain or beans and, and just compare it to this, this whole thing. That's what temptation is. Well, what we're told in, in verse 18 is that since Jesus himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So how does he help us? Well, verse 17 tells us how. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That, that, that phrase, to make propitiation, I'm sorry, in things pertaining to God is hugely important doesn't say that Jesus became a merciful and high, and high priest, period. It says he became a merciful and high priest in the things pertaining to God, the things that concerned God, the things that concerned our relationship to God and the judgment of God and the righteousness of God. If, if you want to make somebody angry on social media today, just say Jesus did not come to solve social problems. Jesus did not come to solve social problems. I can show you this in Scripture. In the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus was teaching, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. That he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Arbitrator. You see, in in their system, the oldest brother inherited everything. And the rest of the family might get some little bits, but depending on how much was there, they might get nothing. It was the oldest son who got the, who got the, the inheritance. That was the system. And this younger brother then says, tell my brother that the system is unjust and he should change it. And Jesus says, that's not why I'm here. Jesus doesn't say this is a fair way of doing things. He just says, that's not why I came. I didn't come to make you comfortable. I didn't come to make you happy or fulfill your dreams or make you popular. He says over and over again that he came to ransom sinners. He came to save sinners. Paul says it's a trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Sin is not like kids 
who are playing on an old man's lawn, and the, the old man goes and yells at him to get off of his lawn, and everybody says, wow, he's really unreasonable. Sin is a violent, hateful attack on God himself, on his name and, and on his person. Sin essentially says to God, if I had my way, you wouldn't exist. And so God deals with that justly and righteously and deservedly. He brings wrath upon those who are sinners. Everybody facing judgment will be treated fairly. They will receive justice. Nobody receives injustice. If, you're, if you've been saved in Jesus Christ and your sins have been washed away, you've received grace, not fairness, Those who reject Christ, those who remain in their sins and face judgment, aren't treated unfairly. They receive justice. And scripture is full of warnings beginning early in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, God comes to Cain and says, Sin is crouching at the door of your life and it wants you and you must resist it. And Cain didn't. Chapter 3 of Genesis shows the fall of man. Chapter 4 contains a warning to mankind. This is happening. Wake up and pay attention. There's not a human being on the face of the earth who doesn't have a conscience. So for the Jewish people, God can say, I gave you my word and you violated it. To the Gentiles, God can say, I gave you a conscience and you violated it. You deserve judgment. Nobody gets treated unfairly. Nobody gets injustice. And it says here that Jesus made propitiation for the sins of the people, that he did this as a merciful and faithful high priest. Propitiation is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Propitiation is not God saying, well, you sinned against me, you hurt my feelings, but that's okay, never mind. Propitiation is God saying there is a real cost here because of sin. And he sent his son to die so that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's wrath was fully satisfied. If you're in Christ, there is no wrath remaining on you at all. And there never will be. I love that old hymn they used to they, they still play probably on the J. Vernon McGee teaching time. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's a beautiful truth. Because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, the penalty has been paid. The debt has been cleared. The slate has been wiped clean. We are reconciled, justified, sanctified, adopted, and glorified. So how does Jesus come to our our aid when when we are tempted? Well, the first thing that he does is he he made a, a satisfaction for the judgment of God against our sin when we're tempted and give in to it. Because we all come to him with stained hands. We all come to him guilty. But then it says in verse 18, for he himself was tempted. 
And because he himself was tempted, he is able to come to our aid. He warns us about sin in Scripture. He tells us what sin is. He tells us what righteousness is. As Christians, we are given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit warns us ahead of time. That's not right. That's sin. That's wrong. And as we grow in Christ, we we learn to, to pay attention to this renewing conscience that we have. We have a, Linda and I have a, uh, a friend, an acquaintance who is in the disciples program at the Norfolk Rescue Mission. And I really like this, this woman because she, she says exactly what she thinks. You never have to wonder what she's thinking because she's going to tell you. That usually gets her in trouble because she has no internal editor. And uh, I was talking to the director, Will Perrigan, this past week, and he told me that in one of their study classes, she said, I have a question. And he kind of swallowed hard and said, yeah, what's your question? And she thought for a second. She said, no, it's okay, never mind, I won't ask it. And we just thought, wow, she can be taught. She, she's learning to think, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say everything that I think as soon as I think it. That's, we see that as a sign of the Spirit of God working in her to soften her, to, to humble her, to teach her to listen more. So Jesus has rendered Satan powerless. He has made propitiation for our sins. He, he comforts us in the temptation that we face because he's faced it. He's faced more temptation than you ever have because he faced the temptations we all have. And I'm not tempted in the ways that other people are. As, as we think about bringing this home, I, I think it's very simple. We are born enslaved. Jesus took on flesh and blood. And he fights for us as his people with a ferocious love. He has rendered Satan powerless. And now we get to learn to live in faith, which rubs no, Satan's nose in his failure. As Satan looks at us and says, I can continue to tempt him and he'll continue to sin. And we learn to obey every time we listen to that that movement of the Spirit of God and pay attention to the Word of God and follow in obedience and trust, Satan loses. And he has to face the fact that God has redeemed a fallen people for his own name and for his glory. And as far as we are concerned, this is what Romans 8 says. And I know you hear this from me a lot. I love this passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Remember, Satan is the accuser and the slanderer. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Satan does that too. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, as those in China are suffering, will distress, as the Swedish midwife is suffering, or persecution, these law students in Canada, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
And yet, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do we overwhelmingly conquer, conquer when we are being put to death all day long and are nothing but sheep to be slaughtered? How do we overwhelmingly conquer? Because we continue to believe. Because as the people of God, he's given us faith in his name. And though we suffer, though we face miseries and pressure and persecution, we stand For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How does Jesus come to our aid? Romans 8 tells us. We have an enemy. That enemy has been rendered powerless. We face temptation from our own sin nature which remains present in our flesh. And yet, Jesus looking at our temptation in our fallen flesh isn't brutal and harsh. He's merciful. And he's, he's faithful. And so my encouragement to you, to me this morning, is that we would continue to trust him, continue to rely on him, And that in our weaker moments, we would fall more into his care. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for the graciousness that you have shown us. We ask, Lord, that as we ponder these things, that you would grant us peace, that you would build us, build our faith, build our knowledge of your word, so that we have greater and greater weapons with which to withstand the accusations and the attacks of the enemy. Continue to sanctify us, Lord, and make us more like you so that sin would continually lose more and more of its grip on us. And Lord, we give you thanks while we are in this life, while we are on this earth, we give you thanks for the promise and the hope that you have given us. And Lord, we look forward to the day when there is no longer a need for hope because you are standing in front of us and we are in your presence. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.